Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Guardian. Boris Johnson breaks a couple of promises in order to keep another. He's raising taxes to tackle NHS backlogs and deal with social care. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. This will raise almost £36 billion over the next three years, with money from the levy going directly to health and social care across the whole of our United Kingdom. The Prime Minister has broken one of the Conservative Party's key manifesto promises with a whacking £12 billion worth of tax increases to pay for the NHS and social care, telling voters the pandemic wasn't in anyone's manifesto. Yes, I accept that this breaks a manifesto commitment, which is not something which is not something I do lightly, but a global pandemic was in no one's manifesto. Labour isn't happy, and neither are the Tory backbenchers, but will voters punish Johnson for broken promises? or reward him for taking what he called the tough decisions. And later on, we'll be talking about green politics in the UK as we gear up for a leadership election in the Green Party in England and Wales and Scotland gets its first green ministers. With COP26 coming up in November in Glasgow, is this the Green Party's moment? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, Parliament is back with a bang. To talk about everything that's happened this week, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Zoe Williams. Zoe, thanks very much for joining me. Um, We're really sort of back to political new term with a bang this week, aren't we? This announcement from Boris Johnson yesterday felt to me like a sort of budget day almost. There was so much packed into it. It's quite a big moment, isn't it? Well, it's a big moment in the sense that he's obviously heard and ignored not just the kind of ambient um, objections to this plan, but the objections from within within his own party. And there were reports at the weekend that he was in invincible mode. I mean, have you ever heard of a more terrifying phrase, Boris Johnson <laughs> in invincible mode? He's kind of stopped listening and stopped listening to the um, objections. So in that sense, yes, it felt bigger than a, than a press conference. It felt like a, a, a kind of more significant and substantial um, announcement. In terms of detail... No, there wasn't a lot packed into it because there was a huge amount of flex in what sounded like um, a a kind of solid plan. It was by no means clear what was left over for social care after they've put that money into the NHS to clear the backlog. It was by no means clear when the backlog will be cleared. If you were sitting down with your calculator as a social care apparatchik trying to work out how much more you would have to spend, I think you'd have a job. And so we just... just, just, um run us through it. So who's going to have to pay for this um, £12 billion a year and, and how much and when? The, the way it's raked, and it's, a re- it's really peculiar, a little bit confusing, because as as you know, national insurance, when you're earn, earning over 50, 
um, thousand pounds goes down to two percent rather than twelve percent. So the the net result of that is that if you're on twenty thousand pounds, you'll pay one hundred and thirty pounds more a year. If you're on £100,000, you'll pay £1,130 more a year. So as the additional yearly payment um, of this 1.25 percentage point raise is proportionally less the more you earn. As a proportion of your income, the amount that's taxable is at its greatest at about 40 or 50 grand when it's 10%. They did avoid one massive pitfall, which was that pensioners, because they don't pay even if they're still working, they don't pay national insurance that they wouldn't be hit by the rise. But actually, pensioners who are still working will pay this rise. They just don't pay national insurance otherwise. And of course, businesses will pay the other half of the national insurance. But So it's actually a 2.5% rise, but the other 1.25 will be paid by businesses. I mean, it, it is quite plainly a burden on the working age population. And what's behind this, Zoe? Why have they decided, you know, the Conservatives traditionally think of themselves as being a low tax party? They made an explicit promise in 2019 in the general election not to raise national insurance or a bunch of other taxes too. Why, why, why have they decided to go down this route, do you think? Well, I think we're kind of falling into their own narrative, which I'm slightly unwilling to do. It's absolutely true that with what what they all said, what Sunak, Sajid Javid and Boris Johnson said, which was that things will have to be paid for. But what they're relying on is that we all see tax as just, you know, a thing. The Tories don't like the thing, but they have to do the thing. Therefore, we all just have to suck up the thing. But the truth is not, the tax is not just one nebulous, amorphous thing. It's you choose who to tax and why and when. What we're looking at is quite an incremental increase to national insurance, which now, which is now is about to reach double what it was 10 years ago, that does say something quite significant about where the tax burden falls. And it's extraordinary. The more you think about it, the more extraordinary it is. It, the tax burden is now falling more heavily upon the low-paid workers than it is on almost anybody else, let alone pensioners. And I think that is going to kind of... I think that, more than the broken promise of, you know, the low tax party actually putting taxes up is what's going to bite them in the end. Yeah, you think that, do you think that's the strongest territory for Labour, the sort of fairness argument, you know, who, who should bear the costs of this? But also, Labour needs to really be thinking about the fact that the, the Tory gains among working age people were really marginal. So the, the, you know, the bloodbath Red Wall election, when the Red Wall turned blue, that election was not one on working people's votes. It was one on pensioners turning out more and working age people not turning out. So Labour is has everything to gain from working age people. So Labour's fixated with like winning back those people with their conservative values. Labour needs to make a promise. It needs to make a new contract with people who are working, we, you know, which goes, which thinks bigger and goes further than Blair and Brown. Because in the whole time of, you know, all the way through new Labour, they were having so many conversations about um, child poverty. They were never having a conversation about wages. And they explicitly admit that now. That's where they need to go. And I don't think it's that hard. And Zoe, do you think the broken promises argument works? So so Boris Johnson kind of embraced yesterday the idea or acknowledged the idea that he'd broken a manifesto promise. And he said, well, you know, COVID wasn't in anybody's manifesto either. You know, do, do, do you think voters buy that 
explanation, that excuse from the Prime Minister? And do you think it's right for Labour, uh, profitable for Labour, to keep sort of hammering the idea that they've broken their promises? Nobody wants to sound like in political discussion or political commentary, and this it goes for, and I'm not talking about comment, the commentariat, I'm talking about voters, is naive or victimised. Nobody's going to go out up to you in a box pop and say, I trusted Boris Johnson and he's let me down. <laughs> because that would make you sound like an idiot. So there's a huge tolerance for broken promises from him as a particular man. And then add in the fact that everybody understands that COVID was a completely untoward event that nobody planned for. You know, I mean, you can get on your high horse and say pandemics aren't completely unpredictable and plenty of people predicted this. But what you can't do, I don't think, and stay credible is say, if I'd been in government, I would have known that the pandemic was coming because nobody would believe you. So I'm not sure how well those arguments stick. In fact, you know, I, th- I don't think they stick well at all. Broken promises and the dishonesty generally, they're not a workable smoking gun if that's all you've got to say. But if you set yourself up in contrast to that and say, I am a person of my word, I will keep my promises and you need somebody in these in these times, indeed in all times, who isn't a joker, who isn't a liar. That can work. So really it's about working the critique into building a picture of yourself rather than launching critique after critique. And Zoe, there was strikingly little detail, as you said, in, in the government's plan about what they're actually, you know, how they're going to spend this money and what they hope to achieve in terms of overhauling the social care system in particular. And social care sort of came quite a long way down the list, it seemed to me, when they were describing it. You know, it gets less than £6 billion over the first three years of the plan. And Sajid Javid couldn't say how much or what proportion of the £12 billion it would get after that, because the first priority seems to be fixing NHS waiting lists. I mean, we, we still don't really know what's intended for social care. Do we accept, accept the implementation of this cap on, on lifetime costs? As a social care plan, it's looking through the wrong end of the telescope. I mean, it's looking through the end of the telescope in which the only interest group are the people who may have to sell their house to pay for it or may not. But there's also, you know, you have to look at it from the point of view of the people who work in the sector. They talked very briefly about upskilling them, which is absolute lunacy as far as I'm concerned, because you won't meet anybody more skilled than a care worker. What the, what the, in, what the sector needs is a system of skill recognition so that you can progress career-wise. At the moment, you'll meet carers who've been doing it for 25 years who are still on exactly the same wages, sometimes less than they were when they started because there's no system of career progression and the financial model is broken. So do you think there will be a sort of slow dawning realisation with people that, 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 you know, the problems in the system haven't been fixed. I mean, it doesn't come in, that, that cap itself doesn't doesn't start to be implemented, does it, until October 2023, apart from anything else. So anyone going to the system for the next couple of years will still face the same problem. But do you think people at the sharp end will will start to realise that, that, you know, Boris Johnson claims to have sort of fixed this, he uses that language, and, and, and they really haven't? Well, I mean, I think basically it's it's sort of a tip. At the moment, we have a kind of conservative government whose only long term interest is in replicating its own electoral power and rhetorical power. I don't I don't think even if there were a good plan for social care, I don't think they would enact it. I just don't think they're competent to to be that kind of government that has a plan and then enacts it. Um, I think it's it's a lot of smoke and mirrors.
Zoe, we heard a lot in the run-up to this announcement about potential sort of backlash. There were certainly some unhappy cabinet ministers. There were a lot of unhappy MPs. But in the end, yesterday after it was announced in the House of Commons, actually, you know, barely any MPs stood up and criticised it. Most of them sort of praised Johnson or, or at the very least, you know, raised an eyebrow and, and but then made clear they would knuckle under and support it. What's going on there, do you think? Is he, is he just riding high in his party? Does the, does the threat of a potential reshuffle help, do you think, to keep people in line? They, you know what Tory Tory backbenchers are like. They're all gong and no dinner. There's, there's, there is an irresistible momentum to a government with a majority this large because, in order for a rebellion to be significant, you have to marshal so many people and and make them all hold their nerve all at the same time. You know, if you're talking about twenty, you can imagine a kind of single interest group in par- in parliament numbering twenty MPs from one party. But they have to get forty rebels. Even with the invention of WhatsApp <laughs> or Signal, that's still <laughs> more than most rebellions can muster. They just don't have what it takes to cause a serious problem for the government and they're in a circle. They're not Eurosceptics, they're not I mean, they they are Eurosceptic, but they but they don't have that same pedigree of troublemaking that the 1922 lot made such hay with in the 90s and noughties. Zoe, I'm told we could still possibly get a reshuffle, perhaps not this week, but maybe before the party conferences, which will be in the next kind of couple of weeks or so. Um, uh, it, there were quite a few ministers. Uh, it would be um, what, what what can I say without being um, too pejorative. Are there, are there some you'd quite like to see the back of? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I mean, my, I worry. I've, I have a horrible be careful what you wish for sensation, even <laughs> even considering this. I'm not saying it could be worse, but I am saying it could be in no way better. You know, the line seems to be solidifying that Johnson can't reshuffle because he's using everybody as a human shield, whether that's Hancock or Rob or, you know, even the only person who isn't working for him as a human shield is Sunak, who seems to get kind of a lot of credit and no critique. The, I'm not sure that how much it would help. I'm not sure how much it would help Johnson politically because it's not as though... It, it, it's not as though he's he's kind of hit some doldrums and he can get rid of people and his own ratings will suddenly go through the roof. The truth is, anything at the, the moment he's relying heavily on these on on his senior ministers to take the fall, um, and he who knows whether who who knows whether that as a strategy I haven't seen it work before but nor have I seen it brought down we'll see Zoe Williams thanks ever so much for joining me cheers after the break Peter Walker and Libby Brooks tell me what's next for Green Party politics in the UK we'll be right back Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hold up. 
Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, it might have been recess, but it's been a busy time for the Green Party in England and Wales and in Scotland. To give me all the latest, I spoke to Peter Walker, our political correspondent in Westminster, and our Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks in Glasgow. So, Peter, thanks for joining us. Um, And we're also going to talk to Libby Brooks, our uh, Scotland correspondent. Um, But first, Peter, perhaps we could start with you. The Green Party are are riding high in the polls at the moment, aren't they? There was a poll out um, the day before we recorded this, which put them actually above the Lib Dems. I mean, that's not been seen for a while, but they were on 10% uh, as against the Lib Dems 9 they, they do tend to go kind of up and down in the polls. And when it gets to general uh, election, it doesn't necessarily benefit them that much. But this is really kind of good news. And, and it's interesting to wonder why. You know, I almost wonder if perhaps the Extinction Rebellion protest might be focusing people's minds on the uh, climate emergency and things like that. But, but, you know, even when they're not up at 10, they've been bumping it around about five or six percent, which for the Greens is actually reasonably good. Let's sort of take one step back. And we know that obviously they stand for tackling the climate crisis and tackling it much more urgently you know give us a sense more broadly of what their sort of policies are you know how would how would they go about that and and what's their approach to other sort of political social issues i mean the interesting thing about the greens is obviously the climate emergency stuff people know them for but they're getting more well known for their kind of general economic and social justice uh, things and and you know one of the kind of curses of being a green is that they come up with uh, uh, ideas People kind of laugh at them for a year, then they think about them for a couple of years and they get taken on by uh, other um, other parties. So take, for example, the idea of people working a uh, working a four day week. It was the Greens, certainly in the UK, who first came up with that. And everyone thought, oh, my goodness, it's you know, completely, uh, completely crazy. But the Greens are perhaps the only party who are thinking seriously about the future of work, about this kind of technologized decade we're going into and how we're going to you know, live in this period when there's perhaps not enough work for people to do. But it's about, you know, the future of work, it's about equality, it's about tackling inequalities in wealth. Um, it's all sorts of stuff. And, and you know, that they're quite keen to not just be defined by this one thing. And Peter, there's a leadership race going on at the moment, isn't there? A contested leadership race in the Green Party for the first time in quite a while. Well, they've been contested in the past, but Someone told me that this is about the first time in a decade it's not been completely obvious uh, who was going to win. There's two duos who are very, very much you know, seen as the front runners, but it's almost completely 50-50 between the two of them. And what are the issues, Peter, that it's being fought over? It's as much symbolic as anything else, because you have on the one side um, this uh, duo of Carla Denia and Adrian Ramsey, both of whom are kind of quite long-term activists and have been parliamentary candidates quite a few times. Caledonia is seen as perhaps their next big chance of getting a uh, parliamentary win. Um, and on the other side, you've got Amelia Womack, who's been the deputy leader for about seven years, and Tamsin uh, Omond, who was one of the co-founders of uh, Extinction Rebellion. And even though Amelia Womack is obviously quite an establishment figure in you know, green terms, having been the deputy leader, they're seen almost as perhaps the representatives of the younger, perhaps more protest-based groups. Um, there is quite a long and complicated argument about trans rights, which most people basically agree on. It's about, you know, how it's implemented within the party. You know, it's actually turning out to be quite a face of quite a feisty battle so far. Interesting. And are they in a position, do you think, to win many more seats at the next general election? They are, they're, of course, you know, if you have 10 percent support, but it's evenly spread across the whole country, it's incredibly problematic, isn't it? And, and you know, are, are there do they have many chances of gaining more seats than, than that uh, Brighton one that Caroline Lucas has held for some time? 
Yeah, I mean, they've had Caroline Lucas's seat since 2005, but they've not been able to expand it since then. Carla Denyer is seen as perhaps an outside shot to win one of the Bristol seats at the next uh, election. I mean, the curse for the Greens is obviously first past the post. Um, you know, the Lib Dems and other smaller parties to an extent suffer from this too. The Greens has almost got it worse that even if they did keep at 10% in the polls, you know, which would be doing really, really well, they would do extremely well to win one or perhaps two uh, seats. So the best hope that they've got is to kind of keep on plugging away and hope um, another party gets into power or maybe they help another party in power. And then you get um, proportional representation coming in. A, a, a Green Party that can poll 8-10% um, in the polls will start to get a reasonable number of MPs and then we'll just grow and then people won't feel it's a wasted vote. Because if you live in a very safe Labour or Conservative seat, or particularly if you're in a kind of marginal where it's been you know, battled out between, I don't know, Tories and Lib Dems or Labour and Tories, then there can be a sense that voting Green can be a waste. Um, so they're completely scuppered by the electoral system. Libby, that brings us very neatly, doesn't it, to the situation in, in Scotland where the Scottish Green Party is completely separate, isn't it, from its English counterpart, but it, it does have the benefit of a proportional system, at least for Holyrood, and, and is on its way into an agreement with the SNP. The Scottish Government has reached a proposed cooperation agreement with the Scottish Greens. Working together to build a greener, fairer, independent Scotland is groundbreaking groundbreaking in both Scottish and perhaps even more so UK politics. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's in agreement with, with the SNP government um, as of the end of last month when um, the leaders, Nicola Sturgeon and the leaders of the, the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, made this grand announcement at, at Butte House. A lot has been made of, of the historic nature of this deal. You know, it's the first time that the Greens have been in government anywhere in the UK. Nicola Sturgeon has, has said repeatedly that this is about being seen to do politics differently and that the agreement is based on a spirit of cooperation and consensus building. There's uh, certainly a, a lot being, a lot of fanfare uh, around, around this, this agreement. To be clear, it's, it's not a traditional coalition. The Greens have secured a series of, of opt-outs for themselves on, on policies that they feel they just can't agree with the Scottish Government on, for example, on green ports, on aviation. The scrutiny that the Scottish Green Party is now going to be under in terms of sort of every sort of large government decision, I think I think that is going to sort of bring with it its own pressures as well. Yeah, absolutely. And do you we're speaking, Libby, before Nicola Sturgeon presents her programme for government at Holyrood. Do you think we'll get a sense of that from that, that this is a sort of green tinged government, you know, that the Greens have, have got something for these compromises they're going to have to make? Yeah, I mean, we we've we've already got that sense from from the deal itself. It, it was very detailed in terms of what the two parties are proposing, putting forward for this next five year term. I don't think there'll be any sort of fantastic surprises in the PFG, um, aside from the fact that we'll we'll just get a bit of more of a sense of of what they are prioritising. More broadly, in, in terms of, of the, the deal that, that the parties worked out, you know, for, for the, the rest of the term, it's, it's very, very early days in, in terms of that sort of green tinge. You had Friends of the Earth saying that they 
they sort of were feeling cautiously optimistic about it in in terms of, of the Greens being able to sort of pull the SNP um, more towards being being more radical on on climate. And do you think there'll be a risk, Libby, that the voters end up punishing the Greens? You know, we saw uh, with the Westminster government, the Lib Dem Conservative coalition, you almost felt at the subsequent election that the Lib Dems were sort of punished more harshly for the decisions the Conservatives had made than than the Tories were because they'd gone into government with them. And, you know, you, at least you knew the Tories were Tories, but this wasn't what we expected from the Lib Dems kind of thing. Do you think there's a risk that they get sort of hung on them, unpopular decisions that, that the government makes? I think inevitably um, a, a lot of Scottish Greens are sort of looking back and quailing at the experience of uh, Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats. I mean, again, I guess I would just sort of reiterate the fact it's it's not a traditional coalition in the fact that in the sense that there are these sort of opt outs for for the policies that that there isn't going to be agreement on. It was interesting at this Holyrood election just gone how much the Scottish Greens made of their sort of ability to to influence the SNP from out with government you know they they pushed them on free school meals for primary kids um, an eviction ban during the pandemic um, increasing public public sector pay in in the most recent budget you know they had some really significant wins and and so it is it's going to be very interesting to see what you know what what they're able to bring to the electorate in in five years from now, and and whether that uh, you know that that list of of sort of influences is as convincing. Certainly, the I would say that the SNP gets a, a great well. It's it, it appears at the moment that the SNP gets a great deal more out of this than um, than potentially the Greens do. But at the end of the day, they are also in government. Uh, and have two ministers in government for the first time. So we'll see what they do. And Peter, I'm sure the, uh, just to come back to you quickly, I'm sure the the Green Party uh, south of the border will be watching extremely closely to see what happens to that agreement and and how that goes. I think it's a really interesting time for the Green Party in England and uh, Wales, because they are, to an extent, you know, governing on a low level. And in the Westminster Parliament, I mean, they basically would most likely have to wait for proportional representation. You could potentially see um, a scenario where, you have such a finely balanced commons that one or two Green MPs could make all the difference. They're basically playing a longer game. They're, they're just showing that they can build up power at councils, that they can use power well and then just get treated as this serious alternative political party. And it, Libby, presumably the Greens in government in Scotland will be very keen to highlight the COP26 conference that's coming up very soon, um, uh, you know, and put, put pressure on both the Scottish government and the Westminster government to try and ensure we get some progress there. I think that will certainly be concentrating minds across the UK. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting up here. I I think at the moment it's it's less a, a question of where the Scottish Greens are going to fit in, but does the Scottish government fit in at all? Um, we've had Boris Johnson saying previously that all the devolved administrations should be involved in the conference, but then over the weekend, we've had these leaked messages from Downing Street showing that um, Number Ten is trying to sideline Nicola Sturgeon from the summit um, over concerns that she would hijack it to push for Scottish independence. Um, sort of advisors saying that Johnson shouldn't be sh- seen sharing a platform with Sturgeon in the run-up to the event, and um, that she should be neutralised by including all the other devolved leaders wherever possible now it's you know it is it is a constant 
Mona up here that, that everything ends up being seen through the lens of the Constitution. And I think it would be gutting on a whole new level if, if COP26 ended up getting pulled into the constitutional mine as well. And of course, Peter, you talked about Extinction Rebellion protests making these issues more sort of salient and making the public think about them more. Of course, that will be um, hugely multiplied when the COP26 conference is happening very soon, won't it? That is very true. And um, Extinction Rebellion are not the kind of protest uh, arm of the Green Party. But particularly if Tamsin uh, uh, Omund becomes one of their co-leaders, the links will be that much more. And I think very, very much when it comes to COP26, the party in England and Wales feel that it's kind of their role to hold Boris Johnson's feet to the fire over the promises that he, he, he makes. I think they very, very much expect him to make a big show of promising a lot of stuff, but for COP to not actually necessarily achieve that much. And it's going to be interesting to see how much they do yoke themselves to Extinction Rebellion, particularly over things like this, because um, Extinction Rebellion are obviously quite a divisive group that, that they're very, very popular amongst the young. But there's also polling that show that, you know, amongst the population at large, they're the you know, least popular protest group in the UK. Um, and for the Greens in England and Wales, that's going to be a little bit of a test. And, you know, COP26 might be uh, a way that they, you know, show what they do. Definitely one to watch in both north and south of the border, I think. Uh, Peter Walker and Libby Brooks, thanks both very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Frieden talks to Moira Donegan about what last week's Supreme Court decision means for abortion rights in the US and how the political world is responding. If you have any time free between this episode and Friday's, then please subscribe and leave us a review. But for now... I want to thank our guests Zoe Williams, Peter Walker and Libby Brooks. The producer is Hattie Moyer. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 